This is Missing Peter Zosky in Prince George, broadcasting on CFUR 88.7, and I'm your host, Stuart Parker. is Monday, May the 24th, Queen Victoria's actual birthday, and you are listening to CFUR 88.7 on your FM dial. I'm Stuart Parker. I'm the host of Missing Peter's Aussie and Prince George, and uh, today we're setting aside uh, the hour to talk to Norm Farrell. Uh, Norm's a retired accountant who, uh, for the past uh, decade or more, has been running a blog called Insights.ca. It's full of the financial angle of the B.C. government's love of selling off our natural resources and the financial sense or lack of sense in many of those decisions. We, of course, are having this conversation in the context of the Ferry Creek blockades, in the context of continued concern over Site C. And Norm is with us for a whole hour to take us through the complexity of some of those issues. Uh, Joining me on the line uh, is uh, Norm Farrell. Um, You may know him for his um, comprehensive website and uh, Twitter presence, uh, insights.ca. Uh, Norm's been a uh, blogger on um, important uh, issues of uh, public trust uh, for more than a decade. Uh, Former accountant, he is currently focused on uh, energy issues in the province, uh, energy and resources. So first of all, thanks for coming on the show, Norm. Well, you're very welcome, Stuart. Glad to be with you. Now, uh, there are... Uh, at least in my neck of the woods, um, energy issues are pretty much front and center. Site C is pretty much front and center. And um, we continue to be in this situation where the government says the money's already been spent, it's a fait accompli, and yet there are constant construction delays with the dam, uh, problems with COVID at the work camp that the government refused to close, um, all sorts of issues. Um, given how long ago Site C was announced, why are we still plagued with so many controversies about the dam? It seems to be a, a question of inertia. The, the government committed to a particular project many years ago, and no matter what the difficulties are, they are bound and determined to carry on. So they, I think before we look at Site C in detail, we really need to examine the entire energy or electric uh, utility system in the province. Uh, PC Hydro has not had any increase in demand since 2005. So we've had a long, long period of time where there's been no growth in the uh, sales of BC Hydro to its uh, residential, commercial, and industrial customers, despite the fact that the province has increased its uh, population steadily. And yet, there's, there's been no recognition in that. For the past 
20 or more years, BC Hydro has continued to put out a story that claims that uh, electricity demand is going to rise as much as 40% in 20 years. And so they sold BC Hydro as a, a necessity because uh, we required the additional power. And yet that's not, not been true. It wasn't true at the time when they approved this project back in, well, for the final time back in 2014. And it's still not true in 20, it wasn't true in 2017 when the NDP agreed to proceed. And demand has remained flat into 2021. The other factor is that DC Hydro has been buying private power in fairly significant amounts, well over a billion dollars a year worth of private power that it's acquiring from independent power producers or IPPs. That's a situation where those IPPs are being paid two to five times market value for the power. And that's something that's not typically admitted by BC Hydro or the BC government, but it's led to the expenditure of more than $10 billion paid to uh, IPPs above the market value of the product that they're selling. So just imagine if the government was going out and paying you know, two to five times market value to buy trucks, then, you know, electricity is not, not much different than any other commodity uh, we should be buying or at or around market price unless there's some particular public concern such as uh, job creation and yet hydro facilities don't create much in the way of permanent jobs there's some on construction but little afterwards now when they decided to go with site c they put aside whole bunch of cheaper alternatives at the time uh, we could have returned the Columbia the Canadian entitlement in the Columbia River Treaty which we've been selling routinely for three to four cents or two to four cents per kilowatt hour just as an aside the site C is going to cost us something like 15 cents a kilowatt hour um, other jurisdictions have been adopting wind and solar power and wind power has been in the two to five cent per kilowatt hour cost. BC Hydro and the proponents of Site C have argued that, that we can't take, we can't add wind power in any substantial amount to the grid because all power must be dispatchable. But if you look at Europe, there's approximately 20% or more wind power being utilized. So how are these nations able to do it? And British Columbia is unable to do it. It just doesn't pass the sniff test on that particular one. So now, essentially we're acquiring, we don't have any increasing demand, but we're inquire, acquiring both an increasing amount of power and an increasingly expensive power. Is that right then? Absolutely. And I said that 2005 was the last year that there was any growth in the demand. And there's been zero growth since then. The line has been quite flat. That's largely to do with uh, efficiencies that are gained in the way we use electricity. Uh, and yet I think there, there's general agreement that we could gain even further efficiencies if that were the way we wished to go. 
BC Hydro simply doesn't want to go that way because it a large portion of the senior officers at BC Hydro, the senior personnel, are working on expansion of the provincial grid. Now, they're not interested in reducing power demand. They're more interested in expanding the empire. And we've seen that during the period from 2005, BC Hydro assets were worth about $12 billion. They're now well over $40 billion and continuing to grow. They will exceed over $50 billion in the next few years. And there's still no certainty that demand will have grown. So it's costing substantially more to deliver the same amount of power that BC Hydro has delivered in years past. Now, I mean, the way you talk about BC Hydro, it's as though it's like some kind of snarling beast we have sort of chained up that it has its agenda, it has its interests, and unless we somehow restrain it, it's going to proceed in that way. This seems a strange sort of way for a publicly owned energy utility to be. How is it that BC Hydro could develop its own interests and its own plan independent of government? That's that's uh, impossible for us to answer because uh, when the NDP was in opposition, they complained about this kind of situation routinely. They objected to the private power contracts that were being let out. I think the last power power contracts that were issued uh, back in 2015 that were new for new services. There have been additional ones on renewals uh, since then, but the last ones issued in 2015 were for 75 years. And so it's, or sorry, they were for uh, 60 years lasting until 2075. So we were, even even though the whole energy situation was uh, all was shifting dramatically, somehow the BC government and BC Hydro decided it was worth giving a, a private corporation a 60-year-long inflation-protected agreement to purchase their power. That just doesn't it doesn't make any sense from a business point of view. And so then we have to start looking at uh, what other reasons could they have had? And I think the days of pay to play were certainly with us when the liberals were in power. And I think there was part of that. The, the company that uh, got that 60 year contract, Alta Gas, was delivering power in the uh, northwest part of BC. And in the Northeast, they were buying power from BC Hydro for their gas processing facilities, and they were paying a fraction of what they were what they were gaining from the sale of power to BC Hydro. So you had the ludicrous situation where one company is uh, buying power cheap from BC Hydro and selling very expensive power to BC Hydro. Now, certainly, we have that sense that. Um, of pay for play, as you say, of Rich Coleman uh, standing at the door collecting $20,000 checks as corporate lobbyists file in. Um, and we can, 
And I think many of us who worked for the New Democrats in 2017 imagined that simply from a patronage standpoint, the NDP, even if they were equally corrupt, would start giving favorable contracts to their own people and not to BC Liberal Party donors. And yet we see the entire BC Bus North system they put in um, was for a company that donated every year to the BC Liberals until those donations were banned. Um, and we see this with all kinds of corporations, right? The corporations that gave money to the BC Liberals that didn't give money to the BC NDP are yet continuing to experience this highly favorable treatment. And uh, what do you make of that? Is, is um, I mean, I have a partly few different I, possible explanations, but I'm curious yeah. about yours. Partly, I think it's a, there was a choice made by the leadership of the NDP to once they gained power that they were going to uh, follow the pattern that the BC Liberals had set. And the first thing they did was decide to keep in place all of the senior bureaucrats or most of the senior bureaucrats that uh, had been running the provincial government. And we've seen specific examples of that in the energy industry where uh, uh, the senior people there were were very much involved. I think uh, right now you have the deputy minister is Fazel Millar, who was a Fraser Institute uh, operative some years ago, and uh, has had a long history of suggesting that government ought not to be in business. That uh, that uh, the private sector should manage everything is strictly a libertarian point of view. The BC government has left them in place, which is a bit strange to me, but I think it arises out of this decision that they were going to just leave things much as they were, and they were going to follow the pattern in uh, economic matters that that the BC Liberals had established. Uh, I I know that it what is the point in policy continuity? I mean, what is well, what I, is the thing they think they will gain from our retention? They want to retain power, so they saw the BC Liberals uh, stay in power for from 2001 to 2017, and John Horgan and the people that were close to him decided that they wanted to have a long run. They specifically rejected the uh, Dave Barrett approach, who. When Barrett said years ago, uh, we're not here for a long time, but we're going to achieve some things in the short term. And uh, so, you know, some fairly radical moves were made at the time by the Barrett government, that some of which are still in place, like ICBC and the Agricultural Land Reserve, although the latter has been distorted uh, hugely from what uh, the Barrett government intended. The I think the um, I think the um, the BC NDP have decided that they're going to simply model themselves on the Gordon Campbell Christie Clark style of government, and nothing much is going to change. Now they are a little bit more progressive in the sense of uh, certain matters that, uh, such as labor laws and. Uh, you know, minimum wage. The, if you recall, 
Gordon Campbell froze the minimum wage for something like 10 years. They froze uh, benefits paid to um, disabled people and so on for very extended periods of time. So they, the NDP, I will give them credit for having improved some of the social programs in British Columbia. They, uh, but on matters of economics and natural resources in particular, energy in particular, they just continued exactly the way the uh, the BC Liberals before them went along, and uh, you know I think I think the, the certain certain kinds of people that were involved in the uh, Site C decision, uh, some of the large labor unions had provided financial facilities to to the BC NDP during a time when they were very much uh, in distress, they were forced to sell their provincial headquarters to sustain themselves. They were in a deficit position. And so they needed to gain some money and they turned to their uh, large international unions for support and they got it. And that allowed them to go out and uh, conduct the 2017 election and I think they gave they gave some promises that uh, certain things were going to happen. One of those promises was the continuation of Site C. I think from the time that they were elected and took office in July 17, uh, there was already a decision made to proceed, continue proceeding with uh, with the uh, hydro dam. And despite anything else, they were simply had decided it was a go and uh, they weren't going to look back. They used the argument about the sunk cost fallacy. They say, oh, we've already spent this much money, so we've got to keep spending and we have to continue it, which is uh, which is nonsense in economics. You don't, uh, you don't continue wasting money once you've already established that a project is the wrong project in the wrong place at the wrong time. But uh, I, I think it's there's been a kind of a I think a fairly strict discipline been maintained in the BC uh, NDP caucus. You see people that were very much opposed to uh, exploring the continued subsidization of natural gas and the expansion of BC uh, of Site C and BC Hydro private power. All of those things that were criticized intensely by uh, NDP members in the past, those same people are quiet about the subjects today. Uh, now, I this also, people... this brings me to another bunch of people, of course, because we didn't get Site C, $6 billion in new LNG subsidies, a billion dollars a year in... Um, uh, fossil fuel subsidies, a quarter of a billion specifically in fracking subsidies. Um, with the exception of the first vote on the $6 billion package, um, this wasn't just the New Democratic Party of British Columbia doing this. This was the Green Party of British Columbia that voted for all the increases in fossil fuel subsidies, um, all of the uh, increases in fracking in the final budget uh, before the election. Um, certainly we can talk about a kind of social pressure on new Democrats out of some kind of tribal loyalty, but 
How do we explain the Green Party holding the balance of power and voting through a 26% fracking increase in the last budget? The, I think the, uh, the Green Party has, in effect, the, the caucus of three was really the leader and two others. And I don't think they, there was much agreement uh, amongst them. I think that the uh, Andrew Weaver's departure uh, has allowed uh, the Green Party to return to its uh, uh, greater concern for environmental matters. I, I wouldn't expect that the Green Party, as it's structured today in B.C., would be terribly interested in uh, supporting the initiatives that it supported during the uh, during that first period when the NDP was in a minority situation. Well, uh, actually, just to, just to, just to, to hold on to that, that's one of the reasons I do the chronology that I do. Andrew Weaver had left the leadership and left the party when they voted for the twenty six percent fracking increase, and we have to remember they the government only had a one vote majority. So either Sonia Furstenau or Adam Wilson by themselves could have defeated the 26% fracking increase. Right. And so one is left with this sense of, well, they now have the opportunity to be the opposition and take these positions, but we're still left with this mystery of their final, of the final year of the minority government. And- the Greens begging the NDP not to call the fall election. Right. I, I, I think the, uh, the Greens were in a, a situation where they didn't have much influence. They uh, wanted to sustain where they were because they feared what might occur if an election did, did go on. And uh, as we can see, they didn't make any particular particular gains that were significant. Um, I think they, they didn't want to, uh, to have an election. In the, I, I think that the Green Party seems, it seems to me, and I haven't really studied it hugely, but it seems to me that the Green Party has a mixture of people who are interested in protecting the environment, but they also have a certain sector that uh, is involved or is would lean more to the conservative side of uh, thing of things, so that uh, they don't see a large role for the public sector in terms of the economy. Right. So I think the Greens are in a kind of a unique situation where they've got uh, they've got a potential growth situation if they would commit themselves to protecting the environment in all ways. And yet they haven't chosen to take it. And I can't really explain that for them. It is very strange. So one of the questions that we sort of have is there are a handful of people who, you know, we see on Twitter, uh, you know, with important facts about the issues that are before us on questions of the public trust. Uh, we see you, we see Lindsey Brown, we see others speaking out about Site C. We see, you know, Tsipora Berman and you others speaking about climate. Um, but if we can't look to the Greens, and we certainly can't look to the opposition liberals, um, 
institutionally, where where do we look when it comes to looking uh, looking for organizations that um, are advocates for the public trust for the proper maintenance of public assets like BC Hydro, um, because I feel like we're in this situation where none of the political parties that are running seem able to take uh, take on these major questions. And we also see this increasing fragmentation of media, right? That media is either owned by Glacier, by Black, by Post Media, or it's some tiny uh, news organization that has split off from another one. You know, so you have the rabble ricochet split. You have the narwhal. You have, um, um, I can't even remember the new Naomi Klein media organization's name. Um, but we seem to, we seem to be in a very fragmented environment for those who are trying to contest this dominant two-party consensus running the province. Um, where do you think we should look and why do you think it is that we're so fragmented? I, I think the, uh, you know, the inaction of the mainstream uh, media in looking at any of these difficult situations that we've observed closely um, is, is um, it's very much a bothersome thing. Uh, we don't, like post media is, is almost useless. There's been a little bit of uh, examination of the Site C project done by uh, Vaughn Palmer in recent months, but that's after years of basically ignoring the situation. And he doesn't go beyond just the surface, the easy to report kinds of things. There's no analysis, there's no digging in, there's no investigation of uh, what the situations are. Uh, the kinds of kinds of things that I've been writing about for years, which is, uh, you know, the subsidies, as you mentioned previously, the subsidies to the uh, fracking companies. It's it's been massive. Uh, it's the, the post media and, and other others have on occasion reported about small increases that are uh, put out in the. Uh, um, drilling credits that frackers are getting, um, they, they'll indicate it, do it in such a fashion that it makes it seem that it's a fairly insignificant um, program that's just, you know, aimed at gaining additional employment in the industry. And yet the fact is that we've had more than $10 billion uh, provided to the uh, natural gas producers by way of these drilling credits uh, over the lifetime of the program. And it's the liberals that brought this in some years ago, but then they've continued them without change under the NDP. That's well over $10 billion that could have gone into things like schooling or hospitals or climate, other climate change initiatives. Uh, I, I fault the mainstream media for their refusal to even examine that situation. Uh, same with the private power. And I mentioned previously that over $10 billion there had been spent 
in excess of market price to buy private power. Now, if you add those two sums together, we're talking about well over $20 billion that could have achieved huge social benefits for the province. And yet the mainstream media doesn't doesn't let anybody know about those kinds of things. They They simply are not interested. And largely it's because I think the... Uh, the ownership of uh, post media and global TV and others are uh, not interested in damaging any economic interests that uh, tend to control the province. Well, I think that in other provinces, we can look past back to the past to a time where there was a public square, where you had a functioning fourth estate, you had investigative journalism, you had newspapers arguing with each other, you had a, a range of perspectives. I can't recall a moment when that's been true in British Columbia. The Sun and Province merged into the same company very early on. And for most of my youth, it was just different um, forest companies took turns um, running the Sun and Province as their mouthpiece. Um, the extension of that system into rural British Columbia is new. The monopolization of all the small papers is new. But I can't remember a moment uh, when Vancouver or Victoria had like a healthy fourth estate. And so it's always baffled me that um, when we invest in creating new media or, um, you know, media that, uh, that will take these things on, it's, you, it's almost always through a process of fragmentation. We're always hearing about a new media platform that somebody has come out with that's gonna be the new thing. And these things are piling up. I, you know, I look at my bookmarks lists of alternative media in British Columbia, and they're all such small organizations that none of them, that few of them can even crank out one story a day. Um, and in many ways, like the media has caught up with insights, like insights, your blog, as you call it, is in many ways indistinguishable from an, an organization that might be describing itself as uh, a major piece of BC's alternative media scene. Why do you think it is that we, um, I mean, don't invest in consolidating or building alliances um, among people like you, right? You've been at well, this you know, for a decade. And, and why is it that the money tends to go in a centrifugal direction rather than a centripetal one. Yeah, some some years ago, I was made an effort or joined with a few other people in trying to create an effort where we could uh, uh, do some consolidation. We could uh, work together, not necessarily in uh, uh, in in the content creation, but at least in the terms of trying to promote that content to others. And uh, in the end, I sort of gave up because it was a little bit like herding cats, you know, that uh, the people, the people that were in the alternative, uh, I would say the alternative media tended to be there out of choice and didn't want to be parts of larger groups which dictated and I think it 
it was a failure of all of us, myself included, to uh, not go forward with that kind of effort. Uh, I'm not sure that it's uh, ever going to be possible uh, unless unless we had somebody with uh, with vision and with fun funding. Uh, I'm thinking back to years ago when ProPublica was created in the U.S. It was uh, some people that had uh, some moneyed individuals decided that uh, it was important to have a um, trustworthy news source and that uh, the various large corporations were not providing that kind of thing. And so they funded the the beginnings of ProPublica and it seems to have succeeded over time, although it's become more and more like a traditional news source. It's still doing some investigative work. Um, if I had sort of hoped that we might be able to create a foundation or something that would be uh, try and take the lead in funding public interest journalism, um, I guess you look at something like the TAI, which was originally originally funded with the labor union money. That's disappeared, and they are now, uh, I think, funded primarily through uh, through reader support. The Narwhal is uh, funded by reader support, and I think it's done some very very excellent work but they're confined specifically to environment or mostly to environmental matters it's a difficult situation where you have uh, uh, I think so many different alternatives the the growth of uh, Twitter and Facebook over the last decade has changed the world for things like uh, uh, like bloggers like like uh, like me and like uh, Lila Yule and Ross Kay and various other people that have worked on um, provincial issues in BC. Uh, I I recall that uh, some years ago, before the rise of Twitter and so on, that the uh, traffic on on the uh, small sites, independent sites like mine, or was higher than it is today. Uh, I find in my own experience that if I write something that's too dense with information and facts and too long, then the readership uh, declines. If I put out something that's short, easy, simple to, uh, to read, then uh, it gets much more traffic. And it's kind of like people today have been conditioned to uh, surf the internet, but they also surf the the news. They look at they look at things that that are easy to understand and can be uh, captured in thirty second or sixty second uh, capsules. And I think there's a real lack of analysis and uh, detailed understanding of of issues today. And I don't know that that's going to change in this day of social media.
are listening to Missing Peter Zosky in Prince George. Uh, I'm Stuart Parker, the host, and you're tuned to CFUR 88.7 on your FM dial. We return to a long conversation we're having with Norm Farrell of Insights.ca, not just about the problems in the BC uh, public square, but problems with the fourth estate in effectively covering these major issues. You know, yeah, and certainly can... there's an there's an anti-intellectualism that I see. You know, we look at the anti-intellectualism on the right, and we often fail to notice how much the left mirrors it. Um, oh, absolutely. That. Uh, we really do have um, a uh, we do have a public square as a whole that seems to be getting uh, less intelligent. Um, that that and our, our networking. Sorry, go on. And we have tribes as well, right? So the the public square is open, but the people, the tribes, stand there hurling insults at each other, and there's no effort to uh, to get to the uh, gist of a problem. There's just uh, cheerleading by each side for their own group. Like, for example, when I mentioned that uh, the discipline in the NDP caucus was high, that uh, there was very little complaining, the same thing is with the NDP uh, membership. There's uh, The party has a large group of uh, members and yet you don't hear them making any move to say what happened to all the things we stood for five years ago. Where, why are we, why have we thrown those away? You don't see the NDP uh, uh, members trying to push their leadership to follow some of the resolutions that were passed in policy conventions. Instead, they just, they're, they're standing by meekly cheerleading and saying, yeah, let's, well, we're better than they were, and yet there's no evidence of that. And uh, you know, similarly, the, the people on the right they they claim that everything said by the people on the opposite side is fake news. And uh, you know, there's there seems to be very little common ground for discussion of actual issues. Yeah, it's um, it is an unfortunate situation now. Um, of course, as we're having this conversation, um, there is pretty important stuff happening at Ferry Creek. Um, based on the last sort of news dispatches you've heard, um, what's the situation on the ground there right now? Well, I'm, I've I've not got a uh, I've not got a direct pipeline into that situation, but it uh, does remind me of situations that have happened in the past. And you see the activists on the front lines that are willing to go out and get arrested to uh, to try and gain some public awareness of the issue. Uh, I noticed that Sephora Berman was arrested yesterday. This is the kind of situation that uh, occurred back many years ago. Uh, and ultimately, it slowly gained public recognition that there were important issues at play here. Now, we can't just allow corporations to go in and cut the trees down and then ship them off to uh, somewhere else to be, to be milled. You know, we've, um, we've logged off most of the first, the ancient forests in this province. I think 
I, I've seen figures that suggest that uh, we're approaching 98% of the ancient forests have been removed. And uh, it looks like the government is quite determined that we're going to continue on and remove the last the last two or three percent of those uh, ancient forests with the exception of the occasional showpiece uh, uh, where they say oh look we're protecting the forests here it is here's a picture of a big tree so that proves we're okay in the meantime they've got the crews out in the woods cutting down all the rest of the uh, the materials you, you mentioned the shipping it off, and I just wanted to, again, go back to a surprising thing about this government. Um, I think many of us thought that John Horgan might not be our friend when it came to protecting ancient forest. He, you know, had never been from the green wing of the party. It might be reasonable to expect him to do this. But one thing that he had been on about since obtaining leadership after uh, you know, in 2014, was uh, raw log processing, that he was yeah. going to bring in, bring back the forestry appurtenance legislation from before. And then I think many of us were surprised when he selected as his deputy minister, um, the guy saying, we cannot process timber here, we should ship more raw logs and Horgan doing precisely this. Now here, this was not a continuation of a liberal policy. Horgan hired a new guy away from, I think he was working for BCIT at the time, um, to preside over this increase in unprocessed wood exports. What do you make of that one? Well, I know the, the main reason that, uh, that they people want to ship uh, ship raw logs out instead it's the fastest route to profits because if you want to build a sawmill today then it's going to take you a period of time it's going to be a substantial investment and uh, it's much simpler simply to cut the trees trees down put them on a ship and uh, send them off some somebody else that's the quick profit situation there's no incentive for the uh, large forest companies to uh, create processing facilities in, in BC anymore. And I think the, there's reasons behind that that go beyond simply the, the wage structures that exist in this part of the world. There's a whole question of uh, uh, transfer pricing on uh, global shipments of uh, products and the corporations that are involved in doing it can uh, make certain that the profits ex happen uh, in areas that where there's no income tax uh, exposure to it. So you get uh, somebody cutting the tree in, in BC, it, they sell it to some second party who probably puts it into a third party who then ultimately it'll go through a number of different hands before it reaches the consumer. And the profits that are made between the time it left British Columbia and the time it uh, is, reaches the hands of the consumer, that, uh, that profit exists on paper in a tax-sheltered country. The large corporations can, can 
mill the logs elsewhere and earn more profits just because of the lower cost structures elsewhere. But more importantly, they can hire, they can hide the profits from it. But I mean, this is this is curious, right? Because um, I mean, there's an increasing concentration of our public forest lands in the hands of Canfor. Um, you know, Canfor is run by a former NDP premier as head of the Patterson Group. Um, it seemed like both Glenn Clark and John Horgan, they might not be the greenest politicians, but you know, here we've got all these magic words like jobs. Um, is it, um, uh, is this, were they never going to attempt appurtenance or local processing? Or is this some kind of change in perspective that occurred while they were in government? It's hard to say because uh, these people have been wearing wearing masks that hide, that have hidden their, uh, their real persona. I, I had numerous conversations with John Horgan prior to him becoming premier, and almost zero since then. I think I've met him, talked to him a couple of times. But uh, previously, uh, when when I was doing work on, for example, uh, log exports, uh, John Horgan was encouraging me and uh, uh, even providing some direction in terms of where I could find the uh, better information, more detailed information. So he seemed he seemed to to all intents and purposes uh, be interested in the issue. It turns out that he was not. It was simply a question of uh, whatever was helpful in damaging the uh, policies that the liberals were following at the time mattered to him. But as soon as uh, the liberals were pushed aside, then uh, he continued the same kinds of policies. So which was the real John Horgan? I, I frankly don't know, but I suspect that it's now that he's in a situation of power, we're starting to see that uh, he, like others, are are more interested in um, satisfying the influential people that surround him, and uh, those people simply don't care about protecting the forest. Now. One would think, right, if we were not in a cross-partisan consensus, um, that uh, here the BC Liberals are in the early phases of a leadership race. Five candidates have emerged, and um, we have Shirley Bond as the uh, as the interim leader, uh, my member of the legislature, or I guess she was, now Mike Morris is my member, but she's just across the road, really, and... Um, I notice that we don't see a reciprocal situation with the Liberals. We don't see them doing even what Gordon Campbell did as leader of the opposition, right? Gordon Campbell's people would take up environmental criticisms of the government in a serious way. Um, Campbell's positions on hydro, ironically, right, prevented the commando completion project from going ahead. Um, right. I know the liberals have been out of opposition. You know, they they still haven't quite found their feet there. But um, what uh, do you see any hope for this, their leadership race process, or their party renewal process, turning them into something that can even make the kind of criticisms of these policies that John Horgan was making or Adrian Dix was making as opposition leader? 
I I don't expect that to happen. I uh, I think they'll probably crown uh, uh, Kevin Falcon as the leader, and that will put the old uh, real estate crowd back in control of the party. And uh, I don't, you know, that it's interesting that uh, Kevin Falcon and his uh, uh, his friend uh, Ryan Beatty were. Uh, photographed uh, with Maxime Bernier and uh, were close uh, close advisors to Maxime Bernier. Bernier has shown himself to be somewhat of a racist, uh, uh, extreme right wing. Well, he's certainly trying to do an impression of that. I mean, he strikes <laughs> me more as a kind of George Wallace-like character that he is simply an utterly self-interested narcissistic character who will accept help from racists and will promote racism without even believing it. I think the other oh, thing absolutely. that's screwing, I think the other thing that's screwing Bernier is he so clearly loves women. Um, I don't think he can help himself. There's just I, none of that misogynistic rage that you need from a right-wing populist leader when he's being interview, inter, interviewed by a woman or shaking hands with a woman. It, uh, it seems like he's some sort of 90s patriarch trying to do a Donald Trump impression. I think we'd, we'd understand more about Maxine if we knew who uh, was funding his, uh, his lifestyle. Uh, because I, th I think... I think you're right that he's he's a bit of a tool of uh, of other people and so on. But nevertheless, back to the BC Liberals, I I think uh, you know the 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 powerful, very powerful and very wealthy real estate interests that supported the BC Liberals uh, successfully for them uh, during during that long period of time they were in power. Uh, those people want to return and. You know, Kevin Falcon is their representative. Kind of reminds me of when the uh, big real estate players like Jack Poole and others uh, chose Gordon Campbell to lead the Liberal Party and then pushed aside uh, Gordon Wilson at the time. Uh, here we have a situation where the same sort of people, different names, but the same sort of people are uh, about to... Uh, about to carry Kevin Falcon into the uh, head of the Liberal Party. Um, you know, I I kind of see that in many ways we've got uh, two right-wing parties that are our major uh, political elements in British Columbia. One of them's uh, sort of center-right with a little bit of interest in doing some social good, and uh, the other one's far-right with zero interest in doing social good. Um, so there are two liberal part. There's a liberal party and a conservative party, but the liberal party is not the liberal party. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but, uh, you know, or you could use a Chinese expression. We could call it one party, two factions. Yeah, that's that's more or less what it is, and it's you know it's interesting to to contemplate that there, there's uh, a whole series of. Uh, of groups that uh, that sort of pay respect to the most influential people in our society, and uh, those people that uh, tend to be at the top of the uh, business and wealth chain uh, have great influence in the establishment of policies, and the average the average citizen or groups of, of citizens have almost no influence in how policies get established. 
I was an observer at uh, the leadership convention in 2017 that the NDP had in Victoria. And it kind of amazed me how much effort was put into uh, having sessions that revolved around how to raise funds for the party, how to be a more effective campaigner, and very little time spent on policy discussions. And then even on policy matters, uh, resolutions would go to the floor, but they had to be approved by the leadership before they could reach the floor. Um, those that were controversial got no time at all. Um, things, the motherhood issues were put forward. There, it was very clear to me that uh, the, the leadership wanted no no controversies being developed by the membership. They uh, simply wanted to be able to be left alone. The members of the party were simply soldiers to do and, and were supposed to follow the directions of the generals. And uh, otherwise, you, uh, it was inappropriate for you to speak out. And certainly it was inappropriate to disagree with what the chosen policies were. I liked the idea. I remember when I studied uh, political parties in university many, many years ago, um, the idea of the theory of a political party is the like-minded people gather together to... The theory of a political party is that uh, like-minded people gather together to uh, promote the interests. And that's that was supposed to be a bottom-up kind of operation. Instead, political parties have turned into a top-down situation where the leadership of a party is given direction, gives direction to the membership instead of the other way around. Yeah, it's um, it's curious because really, I think the moment we moved um, to a one-member, one-vote system for party leaders, it fundamentally restructured the Canadian party system. Um, and eventually the law caught up with that. But um, I cannot recall any consequential decision made by any party convention on a policy matter since 1993. Yeah. I, no, I cannot think of a time where a, any, a convention for any federal or provincial party passed a resolution that altered public policy in any way. You know, it's and it's been like that for over a generation now, nearly 30 years. So one of the things I always wonder is who's going to these conventions? Um, what are the motivations to attend them? And I think you're onto something there with it. it's like people who want to hang out with people who have power. I, uh, I went to the same convention as you. I was appalled. I, I heckled the jobs minister. Um, at a hospitality event because I, well, he kept like, TELUS had only bought us two free drinks apiece. If the liberals were in power, it would have been limitless free drinks. And Ralston gets two free drinks into him and proceeds to give a speech about how great this company is. I thought Rich Coleman wouldn't do that. That would be undignified. <laughs> um, you know, you, you know, you want to be bought for 20 grand, not $9. Anyway, uh, I guess that's, uh, that's more my, my personal gripe. Anyway, we're, we've managed to chew up, uh, the better part of an hour. I'm really glad we got to go into some details on this stuff. And I think, I think I, it would be good to have you come back. 
uh, because I'm now thinking about a future show where we talk about political parties as institutions and what's happened to them. Right. I, th I think that's an important issue. And uh, I wish I had more optimism that the, that, that situation could be changed. I, I know I had talked to certain members of the uh, uh, NDP party and asked them if they weren't dissatisfied with uh, with the way things had gone compared to the way they expected them to go. And uh, there's some admission that, well, I'm not very happy with this, but look over here. They've done something really wonderful there. And yet, it's kind of like comparing one very large thing with one very small thing. And uh, it just struck me that there's no willingness to admit that uh, that which they hoped for, that which they worked for, hasn't turned out to be the effective tool that they expected it would be. They, they simply don't want to admit that... Uh, that they were wrong. Well, on that slightly somber note, uh, I'm going to let you go. Thanks very much for uh, for doing the show, Norm. And um, okay. insights.ca, folks, uh, check it out. It uh, updates with considerable frequency with Norm's painstaking financial analysis. Well, there's got ten more than ten years, actually around twelve years of uh, material there. Now there's thousands of articles and uh, yeah, there's a good search routine. If you've got any kind of question to in your mind, just to put it in the search bar there and see what comes up. All right. Very good. We'll okay. talk to you in a couple months. All right. Thanks, Stuart. This has been another broadcast of Missing Peter Zosky in Prince George on CFUR 88.7, co-sponsored by Los Altos Institute, L-O-S-A-L-T-O-S dot C-A.